Thank you, Jan, for that vote of confidence in me. <laughs> I'll try not to make anybody snore. Uh, well, I was just sitting there, and it's only our second time in, 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 uh, together here on a Sunday since the lockdown, and it's just so nice to hear worship in surround sound rather than coming out of a speaker, isn't it? Oh, that's encouragement for people at home to come back and hear worship in surround sound. Um, before I start, can I just say a short word of prayer for us all? Father, give me your words to speak. Give us big ears to listen. And give us soft hearts to follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I like audience participation, especially on a Sunday morning. So, oh yeah, it's, it's on gallery. Good. Uh, so before I start, I want to do a poll of all of us. I want those who reckon that they are in a leadership role anywhere, church, uh, work, associations, uh, to put up their hands. Also, you guys back home who reckon they are in a leadership role anywhere. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, if you are male and you're married, you should put up your hands. Husbands, you are the head of the household, Ephesians 5. Uh, <laughs> um, and if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, you should also have put up your hands. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that it will give light to everyone around him. So, now, let's try the question again. So, if you feel as a Christian, you have been called to be a leader, please put up your hands. <laughs> okay, right, now we're getting somewhere. Okay, my sermon today, you may have suspect this on leadership and greatness. And I'm glad to know that it's going to be relevant for all of us today. Even all you little ones behind the, behind the sound desk too. So our um, New Testament reading today is taken from Mark 10, 32 to 35. Uh, shall we get to it? If you open your Bibles or your devices, let's put your hands at um, Mark 10. And um, ah, we still have a baptism and a co holy communion to go after this. So Mark 10. In Mark 10, we see a scene where two of the Jesus' disciples, James and John, they asked to be seated, one at the right hand and one at the left hand of the Lord in his glory. And while you've heard me say this before, to properly understand a passage, a speech, or even a word, you need to know the context of this passage. Or even the relationship between the speaker and the recipient. So let's look at Mark 10. The placing of this passage comes right after when Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him when they got to Jerusalem. And this is the third time. If you have NIV or ESV, it will be nicely headed there. Third time Jesus predicts his death. So this is the third time that Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. And if you looked up the first time and the second time, the first time is in um, Mark, 30, Mark 8, 31. Second time, Mark 9, 30 just the, the two chapters before, and you will see something quite curious, at least I saw it, uh, a pattern in Mark's ordering of the stories. Three times in Mark's gospel, there is a repeated sequence of, firstly, Jesus 
predicts his death. Followed by, the, the disciples completely misunderstand what that means. And finally, Jesus teaches them what it means to follow him. You can take time later at home to see whether that, that really fits the pattern. What is this pattern? And we know that when something is repeated three times in the Bible, especially when it's repeated in quick sequential order, it is something that the Bible is calling us to give attention to. So Mark wants us to look up and to pay attention to what he's saying. It's not only a mishmash of you know, incidences that he put together in his gospel, it's a, it is a carefully crafted piece of work. And so what's, what's he trying to tell us? I think here he's trying to say that we clearly need to see Jesus and his work on earth to understand our own place and our work that we need to do for God's will to be done on earth as it is now done in heaven. And if we misunderstand Jesus and his work on earth, we also misunderstand what we have to be doing to be bringing God's kingdom, to usher in God's kingdom here on this earth. And in fact, we can misunderstand it so badly that we could be in danger of doing Satan's work while in our misguided belief that we are actually doing God's will. Look at Mark um, 8.31. When Jesus tells of his death for the first time to his disciples, who is he interacting there with? Peter? What does Peter do? Peter rebuked Jesus for talking that way. Can you imagine rebuking the Lord? And in turn, Jesus, Jesus turned around and he rebuked Peter by saying, Get, me, get behind me, Satan. So, this is the same Peter. You'll, re you'll remember also cut off the high priest's um, servant when they, when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, Peter thought that his role as Jesus' disciple was to protect his master, was coming to rule rather than to die. So he did everything he could in that direction. That, that direction. When we misunderstand Jesus' purpose and his work on this earth, we start to do things thinking we're actually helping God's cause. When we're actually acting contrary to God's will. I'm sure Peter was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Do you know somebody like that? Or better yet, have we asked God to search our own hearts to bring to light our own Peter tendencies? Our sincere belief, but could be sincerely wrong. And then Jesus tried to correct Peter's wrong notion of greatness by telling his disciple that to be his followers, we must be prepared to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow his example. Similarly, Mark 9.30, the disciples thought that following Jesus meant what? Being first, getting honour. Again, Jesus corrected them by saying this, whoever wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And in our reading of Mark 10.35 today, this misunderstanding even led 
to the request of James and, and John to get Jesus to put them in a high position of power in, in Jesus' government. Can you imagine this? So James and John, they're part of this inner circle of Jesus who, who were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they were two of the three with him, which Je whom Jesus picked, handpicked to come with him. So they were so close to him and yet completely misunderstood what Jesus came to do and therefore what they should also be doing to help in Jesus' cause, to help in God's cause. And we know from um, the Gospel of Matthew that James and John, they brought, his, they brought their mom with them during this request. And what's so special about the mom? Anybody knows? The mom, according to some records, they identify, they identify her to be Mary, which makes her Jesus' aunt. So they're also playing the close family card. They are saying, hey, Jesus, you know where you get there? No, let's, let's just all keep this power thing within the family. And then look at the audacity in their request. You go up to a te your, your teacher, your master, and you say, teacher, we want you to be doing whatever you ask us, you, you, we ask of you. Whoever does that? Audacity in the, in the request. That's in verse 35. And so for the third time, Jesus taught them that whoever wants to be great must be a servant. I think Jesus must have sensed the urgency of getting this message across for he was about, at the time about to enter Jerusalem to be crucified. And Jesus is about to leave the leadership of his church in the hands of these people who have still got no idea what it means to be leading his people. And so it was crucial to him that he brought the message across for the third time to let them know what it entails. And it's also crucial for us, all of us, all of us leaders, to know what that entails. So verse four, um, 38. Jesus asked James and John, can you drink this cup? Be baptized? The baptism I'm baptized with. This cup is the cup um, that's referred back in, Old, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 25. It is a cup of God's wrath of judgment. And from Revelation 14, 11, we know that this is the eternal judgment of being cut off from God. And the baptism, it's not the baptism we'll be seeing later, but the baptism is the baptism of suffering and death, which Jesus himself refers to in Luke 12. Then James and John, being happily ignorant of all these, or maybe they just didn't want to acknowledge it, they answer, yes, of course we can. And then Jesus answers them, affirming that they will indeed be suffering for their faith. From church tradition, we are told that James, uh, he was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. He died about 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And John, on the other hand of the spectrum, he lived beyond all the other 12 disciples, but he was imprisoned and he suffered in the island of Patmos from where he wrote the, the book of Revelation. What were the rest of the disciples? Well, it was not, not as if they were any better at this point in time. You look at verse 41. 
So when the ten heard about what James and John did, what did they do? They were indignant. So what do you think? Do you think they were indignant because they thought that James and John were just too, too full of themselves and they should not have been asking Jesus that? Or do you think they were indignant because they thought, oh shucks, I should have got there first. I think it was the second. I think because of that, and because it all started bickering so much, Jesus had to call them together again in verse 42. So Jesus gathered them to teach them about the essence of great leadership and of following his example. See, I call this the upside-down economy of God. Upside-down because it is counterintuitive to what the world teaches us. Upside-down because it is how how different from how many of our world leaders and our persons in authority over us behave. But the secret to greatness in leadership, verse 43, Jesus tells us, is that whoever wants to be great must be a servant. And what's furthermore interesting about um, the Greek word used here for servant, it is that it is also used to translate elsewhere as to serve, it's also the same root word used when you see the phrase in the Bible to minister to others. So when you say, when we're in ministry, we say, oh, this is our ministry, uh, we help out in this ministry or that ministry. What we are actually saying, or if we are to be faithful to the meaning of this, this word, is that we are serving and we are a servant to this group of people. So what Jesus is saying here is that great, greatness in leadership doesn't come with trampling over others or using your position over someone. The greatness in leadership isn't measured by the number of people serving you, but by the number of people you serve. What about me, Jesus? Me, my needs? Oh, you thought you came to church to hear good news. But well, hold your horses. I'm going to give you one last piece of bad news before giving you the very, very good news. Jesus proceeds to further narrow the definition of greatness. What does he say in verse 44? Whoever wants to be great, wants to be first, must be a slave to all. Slave. The difference between a servant and a slave, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying the definition here, um, is that the first, they get some sort of wages, and the second gets paid nothing at all because they are the property of the people they are serving. So we're not even supposed to be expecting any repayment whatsoever from the people we're serving. I know this bad news. <laughs> um, Oh, wait, wait for the good news. But so now practically, what would that look like? Service, servanthood, leadership, great leadership. So whether you are someone perhaps in a corner office or someone who just perhaps mostly sits in a corner, you can exercise greatness in leadership by serving others. 
in God's economy, greatness in leadership is not by climbing up, it's actually by going down. Do I like it? Do you like it? No, of course not. I like my corner office with you know, the walnut wood paneling. Smells good. And then with the, you know, the shiny, shiny plaque on my, on my door with my name, my title, and all the achievements I have on my door. Well, nowadays, we don't need that because we just have LinkedIn for that. Um, but I, I, like my, I like my cappuccino. I like somebody to be serving me my cappuccino. I like to, when I'm too busy, I like to ask my secretary, can you go get me lunch? Because, you know, I, I need to finish up my work here. But this, is, this isn't God's way to greatness. Well, call me simple if you can, if you will, but then if he says it, then I believe it. But don't get me wrong, I am not saying do not aspire to higher positions of leadership. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying get, get there by exercising servanthood leadership. See, greatness does not come from a single stroke of genius, just a sudden insight, a flash of brilliant strategy, or one act of courage. The greatness comes for the millions of single, little, sometimes really insignificant decisions that we make on a daily basis, which lead us to that place of greatness. So what would an attitude of service and humility look like for you at work, at school, or at home? Do you need to stop using your power, your authority, your hierarchy, your titles to lord over others, to show others you are better, you are smarter, richer, or more powerful? It, it could be just something as simple as checking your tone of voice when you speak to somebody, especially somebody of, of, of below your authority, or, or just using, choosing to use a kinder word on somebody else. What would our homes and our marriages look like if spouses tried to outdo each other in serving each other instead of demanding things from each other? What would our community, our church look like if we did the same thing here? And if going alone at this you know, servanthood leadership is difficult for you, why not well, get together with your cell group, uh, decide how you together can serve your community. And if you are not in a cell group, or not yet in a cell group, why don't you get together, huddle with people of the same passions as you, and then scheme together how together you can, you can serve and do good in the area of your passion. And I'm speaking to my youths here. It's off script, but and perhaps listening online. Let's just do a 12-hour experiment on service um, for your pesky elder brother, your annoying little sister. Why don't, why don't we just try this for the next 12 hours? You know, the attitude of service. That if, you're, if your dad or mom asks you to do something today, jump up and say, yeah, what can I do for you? And then see at the end of 12 hours how, what the hell. What that works? How how what what happened? And how the atmosphere in the in the family and in the, in the relationship between your brother and, and brother your brother or your sisters has changed? 
and then let me know about it. Moving on, if anybody had difficulty imagining what serving each other could look like, Jesus now points to himself as our model saying in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve but to give his life for many. The use of this title, Son of Man, refers all the way back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel was given the vision of the Son of Man, given everlasting dominion over what? All peoples, all nations, and all languages who will serve him. It's in Daniel 7, 11, um, 7 14. Don't you think it's really interesting that Jesus, knowing the full import of the title he's now using for himself, instead of saying of being served, he says he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In our Old Testament reading today from Isaiah, we are told that this, what this suffering servant looks like. Jesus was a lamb led to slaughter. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. For what reason? Some of you know this really well, so that by his wounds we are healed. And then here now comes the very, very good news. Jesus himself offered up as repayment for our wrongdoings. He offered himself up as repayment for our wrongdoings. If payment for wrongdoing isn't needed, then there would be no justice to, be, to speak of. And so in a perfect solution between his love for us and the necessity of justice, he gave his life up in our place so that we are freed from the condemnation of sin and death. And then we are, choose, are free to choose to serve him and his purpose as our love response and gratitude. For, repay, for the repayment of a debt that we could never have paid on our own. We love because he first loved us. Have you truly understood what Jesus came to earth to do? And if you do, and you have, have you grasped the implications of following him, following the model he has set for us? Just before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested, he said this to his disciples, love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus has given us now the blueprint for greatness and significance for this life and its true servanthood leadership, even unto death. The 12 disciples didn't understand that until after Jesus' crucifixion. Peter, in the end, he did understand Jesus' message on the cost of discipleship. For in 1 Peter 5.3, we see Peter, so wonderful, he uses the same teaching we've heard in Mark 10. He uses, he uses to tell, to write in the, in the letter of not to, to the leaders not to be lording over their flock. And I'm thinking how much pain and abuse could have been avoided over the history of our church if we as church only truly understood that. Peter finally did understand the cost of following Jesus. 
Church tradition has it that he was crucified upside down for his faith. Is it going to be difficult, this servanthood leadership? My golly, yes! Is it going to cost us? Of course. But the promise is there in the Bible, repeatedly. Humble yourselves before the Lord so that in time He may lift you up. That was so with Jesus and that will also be so with us. Are we going to be failing in the servanthood leadership? Yes, over and over again. But each time we fail, we know that we will receive grace from God and hopefully from the people around us, just, just like the disciples did. Jesus kept on explaining to them until they did finally understand. And if we keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we harness the help of the Holy Spirit in us to help us in our task. I know that from my heart that this servanthood leadership is a possibility that we can be living into day by day. We can try at least. Can I pray for all of us? Father, if there be among us somebody who have not experienced how deep and how wide your love is for, for, for them in Christ Jesus, I pray that you'll now move in their hearts to let them experience that. And for those of us struggling with significance, I pray that we'll find our significance not by what we do, but by whom we are known, by you, the Lord who created us, the Lord of the universe who gave his life up for us. Help us in our journey towards servanthood, towards servanthood leadership, wherever you have placed us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.